Makers of Sport Podcast, episode 108, with Dan Simon. Very happy to welcome to the podcast a fellow Kentucky sports designer, Mr. Dan Simon of Studio Simon over in Louisville, Kentucky. Welcome to the show, Dan. Hey, thanks for having me on, Adam. Uh, it's been a long time coming. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess we can let listeners in on a little little of that. We've uh, we've kind of gone back and forth on recording this thing a couple of times. Um, uh, originally. Uh, we were. My, my plan was to interview you in person because we we do live so close together. But um, you know, it's it's tough to connect, right? And especially with uh, you running your own studio, me running my own studio, and and plus my whole podcast set, setup is um, in my office, and and at least personally, I'm a lot more comfortable <laughs> speaking behind a screen instead of uh, in person with uh, with the uh, field recording equipment. So. Um, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's dive right in, man. Um, you and I had an opportunity to meet back in 2012, I believe it was, by a mutual friend of ours, a guy by the name of Joe Bosack that many people that listen to the show would know. Um, I brought y'all into Lexington to speak at, um, an advertising club event. Uh, you spoke at the Lexington Legends Baseball Stadium, which is a minor league stadium there. Uh, you, you told some great stories about getting into sports design at a time before Illustrator and Instagram and the easy tools we have today to mock up projects and and get your portfolio out in the world. And, and I definitely want to get into that. But before we do, let's go back to the beginning. When did you sort of discover this intersection of sports and art? Is there is there a moment you can point to that became a clear point in that it was something that you were passionate about. Uh, yeah, there sure was a, a point where where that happened. Um, it it revolved around Thurman Munson, former catcher for the New York Yankees, who was on a Hall of Fame track um, in his career. He played during the 1970s, uh, and his career was tragically cut short by a plane crash of uh, of a single-engine aircraft that he was piloting. He was practicing takeoffs and landings. Um, He crashed on one of the landings. His passengers were, he was with some friends. They they were able to get out. They could not get Thurman out, and and he died in that plane crash. And uh, he was a, a gruff he was a, had a gruff personality, but he was beloved by Yankee fans, including myself. I grew up uh, in the New York, New Jersey area. I'm a longtime diehard Yankee fan. And when he died, uh, my dad had brought home uh, the New York papers, the Daily News, the New York Post. We also got the New York Times delivered to, to our house. And um, I had cut out pictures and headlines uh about Thurman Munson, and I was in my family room, had a table there on which I had all these pictures and headlines that I cut out and a a blue piece of poster board, and I was arranging them on this poster board. I was making a a homemade poster, 
And while I was doing that, I was having a conversation with my mom. Um, I was a, I had just graduated high school. This is 1979. And I was going to college. Um, I was going to be going to Rutgers University, which is the state university of New Jersey. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I was going to college. I didn't know what I wanted to study. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And I was telling my mom, I've got no direction. And she said... So I assume, you did you play, you played sports up to that, right? Like, Yeah, I, but um, I only played baseball through the age of 13. My, you know what, this, this was also an interesting kind of uh, pivotal thing that happens, happened. Um... I was, my cousin Brett, who is virtually the same age as me, um, and I'm, I have a lot of cousins, but I'm particularly close with him because we're two weeks apart in age, and he was going to baseball camp uh, one summer. And I said to my dad, I said, can I go to baseball camp too? And my dad, who is a certified public accountant and very practical, uh, said, you know, I think you should go to tennis camp instead. Because when you get older, if you want to play a game of uh, baseball, you got to get 17 other guys together. If you want to play tennis, you only have to find one other person. And <laughs> he was my dad. It, that seemed to make sense. And uh, especially since he'd be writing the check, I said, okay, I'll go to tennis camp instead. So I went to tennis camp and I got pretty good at tennis. I played three years of varsity tennis in high school. But uh, so, yeah, that, that was... That was my sport, um, at least through through high school. Um, yeah. So you're so you're choosing a path as far as going to Rutgers. You don't know you don't know where you want to go. Right. I didn't know what what I wanted to do. Didn't know what I wanted to study. Didn't. So I said to my mom, "I I've got no direction." And she said, "This is a question nobody ever asked me before." My mom said, "What do you like to do?" And I looked at what was on the table in front of me, and I pointed to it, and I said, I like doing this. And she said, that's graphic design. You know, even to, even today, like a lot of parents don't know what graphic design is or what to call something like that. So, so back then, I would imagine that she had to have some kind of a, a knowledge about the publishing industry or something to, to be able to to pinpoint that. Well, yes, that you, you are a very wise man because that's exactly what the case was with her. She, well, first of all, she was not artistic, but she was a huge patron of the arts. She had subscriptions to the ballet and to the opera. Uh, she would always be taking me and my sister to my sister, Debbie to museums. Uh, so I was always exposed to that, uh, we had a lot of art on the walls in our in our house, uh, but also my mother worked for the City College of New York Alumni Association, and she was the editor of their uh, newsletter. I guess it would have been, and that had to be designed. And she she didn't design it, but I remember actually going to her office and seeing her setting type on this very archaic typesetting machine. So, yes, yeah, she she was involved in involved in in the publication design for the City College of New York Alumni Association. Oh, not not newsletter, magazine. So, yeah, so that's uh that's how she knew about graphic design. But what was interesting it is it was never even on my radar before that. And frankly, um I didn't act on it right away. 
um, it, it was one of those things, you know, I took that information, I guess I kind of put it in my back pocket and reserved it for, for later. I and went to, to Rutgers University. I was a communications major just for a lack of anything else. It's not necessarily that I wanted to go into communications. It, I, I just had to pick something at the time. It was something I could have changed. But after a year and a half, three semesters at, um, at Rutgers, Came home over winter break, um, sat down at the at my kitchen table. Was having another conversation with my mom, and I just said to her, uh, "I don't want to go back to Rutgers. I, I'm I'm not going back." And she said, "That's fine. I support your decision, but you have to do something." <laughs> now the funny thing is. I hadn't thought that far in advance. I, I didn't have where I'm going to go. I just knew I wasn't going back to Rutgers. So right there, I, I had to make a very quick decision about what I was going to do. Had not given it any thought, any whatsoever. And so I said, I'm going to go to the School of Visual Arts. Uh, School of Visual Arts is uh, one of the finest art schools in, in the country. But the reason I went there at, at first, it was not for graphic design. It was because they had a cartooning major. I had grown up, like a lot of little kids, enjoying reading, you know, the funny pages uh, and the comic strips. And I was always fascinated by comic strips like like Peanuts and Char what Charles M. Schultz created with that. He, he created this world filled with characters that... To me, the the reader and viewer, they were like real people. And I wanted to create something like that. Actually, just stepping back a little bit, when I was at Rutgers, I had a we had had a college newspaper and I had a, a comic strip, actually two different ones, um, Johnny Chimp Undergrad and uh, and another one called Rooster. They were not very good. I was not very good. Um, but it was something I always wanted to do, and so I decided I was... Were you writing them, too? Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I was writing them and drawing them. I was not a particularly good writer. <laughs> I was not a particularly good drawer. But you know what? Now I was going to go to the School of Visual Arts and learn how, how to do it. The thing is, I, so I, I go to the School of Visual Arts. I was a cartooning major for one week, and I decided... I don't know if this is the best way to make a living. One of the things you're told is a lot of people want to do it. Very few people are successful at it. So now I had just left Rutgers University. Uh, I am one week into the School of Visual Arts. I knew I could not, I couldn't leave the School of Visual Arts at this point. I had to at least stay that course. So what I did was, remembering back to that conversation a year and a half earlier with my mom about graphic design, I switched my major to graphic design um, and loved it, loved it. So it was not a well-thought-out plan, but it ended up steering me in a direction that made me very happy. Right. So after you graduated from the School of Visual Arts, I understand that... Um uh, you, there's a design firm. You, you eventually made a move to Southern California. I believe it was Scott Messner Design or something like that. It seems like that you often, out of all the times that I've spoken with you, there's a lot of tributes that you pay to this particular company as things that you learned there. Um, the founder of that studio eventually moved on 
to film and entertainment, which I find quite interesting as, a, as an aside. But I'm curious if you could discuss your time working for that gentleman's company and and possibly some of the pivotal things that you learned there, as I understand that you were there for, for quite some time. And you, and you constantly point back to that as this um, sort of educational point in your career and, and discovering different things. Definitely. The, the individual in mind um, that you mentioned is that's Scott Mednick, M-E-D-N-I-C-K. Uh, and he, when I first met him, he was the creative director at a place called Douglas Boyd Design and Marketing in, in Hollywood. And I met him after showing my portfolio at that place. I showed the portfolio to a woman named Lori Precious, who would then become Scott Mednick's second wife. Later, I should say, later become Scott Mednick's second wife. She introduced me to Scott. Scott had me do projects for him on a freelance basis. When Scott decided to uh, leave Douglas Boy Design and Marketing and start his own place, he, I was his first hire. Um, and we worked out of the living room of his house on Karen Drive in Encino, California, in the San Fernando Valley. Coincidentally, uh, the first house my wife and I would buy together was on Karen Drive, just up the street from uh, from where Scott used to live. So um, it's kind of weird, just all these convergences in my life. So, so Scott and I, the two of us were working out of his living room, and short time after that, we we started. I shouldn't say we. We got a. He got an, a studio space, an office space, um, on in. West Hollywood, where we would eventually grow to be the largest graphic, uh, sorry, the largest independently owned graphic design studio on the West Coast. Uh, we did a lot of entertainment work, uh, corporate clients. We worked, we had game companies, toy companies. It was really a potpourri of, of design. It, it was we were in Los Angeles, did a lot of entertainment work, but work in, in, in a whole manner of other disciplines as well, annual reports. Um, and it was, it was a great learning opportunity. I was there for over nine years. I eventually became the creative director there. Um, I got to learn a lot from being around a lot of talented people, starting with Scott Mednick. And then he, he, he just had, Scott had a knack for making great hires. He found the best people and he got them to work for him. And I was surrounded by incredibly talented people, not just designers, but copywriters, um, great uh, account executives who knew how to bring in business. Uh, just every, everything from, frankly, from the receptionists to the, to the art directors, just great groups of people. Um, it's just an incredible experience. And to this day, it's, I still look back on it that way. I, I've never told anybody this before. So now I'm going to announce it on your podcast. I have the, <laughs> Breaking the, news. the most frequent recurring dream I have. Not, not a specific dream, but uh, I have recurring dreams about Scott Mendick and the Mendick Group and the people I worked with. That was, I left the Meta Group 25 years ago, 
And I still, to this day, regularly have dreams about it and the people that I worked with. It's interesting. Is is uh that was? It seems like other than your own studio, that's probably the place you worked the longest, right? Yes, yes. I I had other stops, um, but with the longest other stop being five years with the Los Angeles Dodgers, which uh, I don't know if. We'll get there when you ask the question that leads to, to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely want to get into that. Um, so I, I do real. I do remember in that specific talk that you gave at the Lexington Legends Stadium with Joe um, that you you somehow discovered uh, sports design and wanted to pursue it. And I remember you you had to uh, build out a sports design portfolio. So can you discuss uh, discovering that? that sports design was an actual, actual thing. Cause it obviously during this time period, we, we, we've chatted before that SME uh, was probably the first ever sports design company. So it wasn't something that today, you know, you, you search for sports design and it's, it's a very uh, diluted industry. So how did you discover that was a thing? And then maybe give some, uh, some details or some stories about how you built that portfolio and, and the, the large task that it was and, selling the work and that kind of thing. Well, yeah, the, uh, it, it's, it's interesting that you refer to um, the sports industry as kind of a diluted industry now. It's amazing how, how vast it is and how many people are in it. Because when you, you said, like, when I first became aware of sports design, I knew SME was out there, but there was no sports design industry at that time. As far as I know, and, and if anyone is a uh, design historian, maybe Todd Radom can, uh, can weigh in on this, but all I knew at that time, the only people I knew doing sports design at that time was SMA. And so there wasn't this industry. And I kind of looked at it as, well, what an opportunity. Nobody's doing this. I love sports. I love design. So what could be better than doing sports design? So Scott Mednick came to me and Peter Thornburg. Peter Thornburg was the head copywriter at the Mednick Group. By the way, it used to be called Scott Mednick and Associates. When it grew bigger, he renamed it the Mednick Group. It later had a name after I left there and had another name changed to Think New Ideas. But uh, at this time, it was called the Mednick Group. And we Scott had just hired a, a new business guy named Brian Ribby. And Brian ended up being a, a crack new business guy. He knew how to bring in business. And he said, look, I got I just hired this guy. He's really good. Uh, what what kind of work do you want us to go go out and get? And Peter and I were were great friends and both huge, huge sports fans. And we didn't even hesitate. Both of us at the same time said sports. And Scott said, you know, guys, um, it's really hard to get sports work. And he used as an example, there was a a place at the time, a a design firm that I believe still exists in some shape or form. It was called the Duffy Design Group. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I'm very familiar with them. And up in Minnesota, right? Right, out of Minneapolis. And at the time, this would have been late 80s, early, no, it would have been early 90s. Okay, definitely the early 90s. And the Duffy Design Group was the 
design firm in the United States. They were winning award after award. Uh, they, their creative director there was a guy named Charles Spencer Anderson. He was doing amazing work. Um, they had other designers there as well. It was just, they, they, were, they were it. And yeah, and he went on to start his own studio as well, didn't he? Charles Spencer Anderson, yeah, he he um, he did. His CSA Design, I believe, is what what he started. And uh, so they're in Minneapolis. And at the time, the expansion Minnesota Timberwolves were about to become a franchise. And the Duffy Design Group, Joe Duffy, went to whoever it was, either with the team or the NBA. And offered to design their identity, the the new identity for the Minnesota Timberwolves expansion NBA franchise, offered to to design it for free and didn't get the job. The best design firm in the United States offered to do it for free and, and they... And they didn't get the job. And and by the way, I don't know who did get the job. But um, uh, Scott used that as an example. He says, that's how hard it is to get design work. So I remember Peter and I uh, retreating back to one of our offices and discussing this. And we said, okay, if yeah, nobody said it's going to be easy. But if it's not going to happen here, we're going to make it happen ourselves. Now, one of the things that I had learned early on when it comes to one's design portfolio is what you show is what you're going to get. If you have a movie poster or movie posters, plural, in your portfolio, that's going to lead to entertainment work. Right. Um, and it seems like that's still true today. Yeah, yeah. And which is why, which is why in this, is a whole separate conversation. There, a lot of designers do these passion projects, self-initiated passion projects, where they there's something they want to do, so they just do it, a self-assigned project to do the kind of work they're hoping to do. They then have that in their portfolio, and there's a, a, a guy named Matt Stevens who did this passion project uh, I would imagine a lot of your your listeners have heard of Matt Stevens yeah he's he's actually he's he's uh he's been on the show okay so episode yeah episode 15 Matt Stevens came on right so real quickly what he did is he 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 always loved these uh, Nike air sneakers I'm trying to think of what it was it was like the air Max air Max it was the air Max one okay right there you go the air Max and he did this project where he where he where he kind of illustrated or designed or like a hundred different ways this one sneaker. And he put together this book that he then sold through a um, uh, GoFundMe thing. And it, it was a sensation. And then he ended, that led him to getting projects with Nike. So, I, so, so that's basically what Peter and I realized we needed to do is we needed to put together we needed to basically do our passion project. So we put we put together a sports design portfolio. Now, this is early 90s. Computers were only just starting to be a part of the design workplace at that time. We were, it, it was so early on that like Adobe Illustrator and Photoshop didn't have a like 2.0 or 5.0 or, or not like Illustrator 5, it was just called Adobe Illustrator because, and Adobe Photoshop because that was, it was the first one and it was, it was all very basic and, and 
there didn't exist all the templates that exist now for where you can mock up a jersey or a helmet or a hat or, you know, do a whole branding presentation all with mock-ups without anything physically existing. The things that are so easy now just didn't exist. So what Peter and I would do is we would we would go out to mom and pop uh sporting goods stores and try to find blank jerseys, whether they were football jerseys or baseball jerseys. We would go to flea markets and swap meets and find old football helmets that we would then take down to this place in Orange County and get reconditioned. Uh, We would do our designs. We would then go to a fabric store and buy felt or other types of fabric and cut our designs out by hand, and then we would take them over to Peter's house where his his wife, Ginger, was a very good sport and agreed to sew sew all these things onto the jerseys for us because we didn't know how to sew. Um, Well, at first we didn't know how to sew, but after about three or four or five or six of our jerseys, Ginger got a little tired of being our seamstress and she said, you boys are going to learn how to use a sewing machine. So she taught us how, how to spin a bobbin and, and sew. So we, we became seamsters, sewed up our own jerseys. Uh, a really good friend of mine named Paul Conrath was a photographer. He, he professionally photographed all this stuff for us, and we had a design portfolio, um, but we had no design work. Fortuitously, my dad, the aforementioned CPA, was at a wedding reception, and he was seated next to a gentleman named Marvin Goldklang, who, who, who was the uncle of the bride. Okay, so he's sitting next to this guy, and they just get to talking, and talk turned to sports. It turns out that Marvin Goldklang was an owner of a minor league baseball team called the Fort Myers Miracle. Previously, the Miami Miracle, he moved them to Fort Myers, and they, at the time, they they were part of the affiliated minor leagues, meaning there's affiliated minor league baseball, there's independent minor league baseball. Affiliated minor league baseball is you're affiliated with a major league team. However, his team, the Fort Myers Miracle, was not affiliated with a major league team, but they played other affiliated, they played in affiliated leagues. But they had just signed an affiliation agreement with the Minnesota Twins, so now they were going to have an affiliation. And he wanted to redesign their uniforms to um, to look like the parent club Minnesota Twins uniforms. So my dad said, well, you know what? My son uh, wants to get into sports design. Marvin said, have your son call me. So I contacted Marvin, and the first thing he asked me was, what have you done? And I had to admit to him, haven't done anything yet, meaning what have you done professionally? Um whose uniforms have you designed? I said, haven't designed any yet, but I do have a sports design portfolio. Now, again, this is before, uh, I guess we had emails at the time, but the portfolio wasn't digital. It was physical. I I shipped it out to him, sent it. It arrived at at his offices in in New Jersey. So 
like, let me just a, a, a detail here. When you shipped this portfolio, was it actual uniforms that you shipped, like phys- those things, or was it photographs of of all that stuff? Photographs of the um, of the physical uniform. So yeah, not and then shipped gotcha. the, the uniforms. It was you know back in those days, uh, a portfolio you'd have your portfolio in in a carrying case, and there, it would usually be right Mount, mounted on black foam core, like the whole. Yep. <laughs> Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. And so it was. You know, you, you would. The, these portfolio cases were usually about I don't know thirty inches wide by about twenty inches high and maybe four inches deep. Um, so there was these big boxes that you would lug around. This one got shipped out to him, and it was good enough for him. And and Peter and I got that project, and that was nineteen ninety three. Um, our first sports design job was the the new identity and logos and uniforms for the Fort Myers Miracle. Um, and and then, as far as going back to you know what you show is what you get, um, that project begat another project. Um, for, fortunately, Marvin Goklang, I don't remember if at that time he owned more than one team, but he would soon own more than one team. So later we did the identity for the Hudson Valley Renegades. Um, I should, I, let me back up a second. When I say we, Peter and I did several sports design projects together, but we eventually decided to break off that partnership. So when it came time to do the Hudson Valley Renegades identity, that was me on my, on my own. Um, oh, so you, you continued working with this gentleman after, uh, after you left Scott Mednick design? Well, backing up, we Peter and I did these projects before I, I left the Mednick group. We just did that on the side. Those were freelance projects we did. So, but I... Oh, so when you guys said you wanted to do sports design, you were at that design studio, um, you, you didn't ever actually bring that work to the studio? You did it on the side? Correct. Oh, wow. So did the owner not, he seemed like he wasn't interested in pursuing it or how did, I'm just curious how you were able to navigate that kind of, navigate that politically, I guess. Uh, Good question. Scott once said to the entire studio, we would have a, a Monday morning meeting with the, you know, every employee would go into the conference room. We had a very, very large conference room, uh, and he, he actually said to all of us once, he said, you guys are free to do freelance. He, he said he did freelance when, when he was, you know, the creative director at Douglas Boyd Design and Marketing. He did freelance. He had his own clients. So he said, you're free to do freelance. You were even free to use the studio and, and the stuff here to do it. Just don't do it on work time and don't let it interfere with your, uh, your, responsibilities here. And so when Peter and I were putting together that sports design portfolio, we'd be done with work at like six or seven o'clock PM and we would stay till nine or 10 or 11. And, and we were working in our spare time on our own, in our own free time. Um, and, and Scott, he had, he had given his blessing to that. Um, so yeah, he, and you know what, he knew things, 
he knew things were going on. Um, so, and when I say going on, nobody was doing it covertly. We weren't hiding it from him. Right. We had his permission, and he saw what people were doing after work. And it was actually a really cool thing that he did because, you know, it allowed people to do things that they might not otherwise get to do at work, and that was that gave us all some creative fulfillment. Um, you know, we, we liked what we did, but not every job at Everybody knows not every job you do, even in the sports design industry, is is fun. So if you have a chance to do something that's going to give you that creative fulfillment um, and it doesn't interfere with your job, that's a pretty cool thing for a boss to recognize and and act out on and say, "Where you can do this. I'm telling you, you can do this. Go ahead. Um, so, yeah, I did a number of – you know what? I continued – doing work on the side all the way up until the time that I started Studio Simon full-time. So that was, you know, during those last years with me at the Mednick Group, two years later, I'm sorry, I was then at a place called Willardson and Associates for two years, did freelance jobs there. And then even through my time at Disney and with the Dodgers, I did work on the side. Um, Just never let it interfere with, with my full-time responsibilities. Gotcha. So uh, what, what, um, I understand that at some point within this, you ended up at Disney. So how did that come about? Okay. I was, I left Scott Mednick, the Mednick group, um, in 1990, give me a second here, 1994. That's when I went to work for Willardson and Associates. Uh, Willardson and Associates was a, actually an illustration studio they did they illustrated the movie posters for like all of disney's animated uh films like the hunchback of notre dame and the little mermaid and all of those during that time mulan and dave willardson who was an illustrator himself wanted to get design um wanted to get design kind of opened up a design segment of his illustration studio and brought me in to kind of head that up. During that time, a former co-worker of mine from the Mednick Group named Chip Sheehan um, was freelancing at the Walt Disney Company. Now, at this point, the Walt Disney Company owned the Mighty Ducks at this point. Um, And they were, frankly... um, they were doing really, really well doing, from a business standpoint. And it was the Disney vision that they were going to become a sports ownership empire. So they were looking to purchase teams in other sports. And they had an agreement to take over w- w- with the Autrys, um, Gene Autry, who owned the California Angels at the time, and his wife. Um, they had an agreement to take over ownership from them. So at Disney at the time, my friend Chip Sheehan was around people who were working on a new identity for the California Angels. And apparently things weren't going well there. They, it was not getting solved. So Chip said to somebody there, you need to call this guy, Dan Simon. He's a sports designer. So I got a call from them. And I ended up working on the Angels' identity on a freelance basis at first. And 
after, I don't know, a few weeks of doing that, they want, they wanted to hire me full time. So I interviewed there. They hired me on as the, my title was design director for sports merchandising. Um, now, again, Disney owned the Mighty Ducks. They were about to take over control of the Angels, and they were looking to buy a basketball team and a football team as well. That, for all of you sports fans, I'm sure you know, never happened, and eventually Disney would divest themselves of their sports teams. They don't own any sports teams anymore. But uh, So, yeah, that, that interestingly, it was through the Mednick Group. Chip Sheehan, I knew from the Mednick Group. He recommended me, worked for... Uh, them freelance. They hired me. I was the best part of that job. Oh, I forgot to <laughs> I forgot to mention because this is how I ended up with with the Dodgers. Is at the time Disney was doing the merchandising, the merchandise design for the Los Angeles Dodgers. For anyone not familiar with uh, Southern California geography, um, Burbank, where Disney is headquartered. Uh, you know, the Disney offices, that is, uh, is just a hop, skip, and a jump from Chavez Ravine, where Dodger Stadium is. And so think about Disney and their theme parks and their merchandising and, you know, the Disney stores. You know, they're, they're masters at merchandising. So they pitched the merchandise business to the Dodgers, and the Dodgers looked at it and said, uh, uh wow, why wouldn't we do this? So that's a big part of what I did for my brief six-month uh, stint at the Walt Disney Company was I was in charge of the group of designers doing merchandise design for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Um, so, but that was not a, that was not, the Walt Disney Company was not a good fit for me. Um, it's a very corporate culture. Um, we, I joke that we would have meetings to schedule meetings, and it really felt like that. It was just interminable meetings. It, it, I, I, I was not the right fit for them. They were not the right fit for me. So after six months, I decided to leave, and at that point, I was going to go out on my own. And the first... Uh, people I contacted were the Los Angeles Dodgers. And I said, look, uh, I loved working with you guys. I love doing this work. I'm going out on my own, and I'd love to keep working with you. And they say, you know what? Before you go out on your own, come meet with us. Uh, I didn't know what they wanted. I didn't know what that was, what was suggesting, but great. I'm, I decided to, co to go meet with them. And what they told me was, because the Disney was right, right at this point, they were right about to take over control of, of the Angels. And when the Dodgers learned of that, they said to, the, to Disney, they said, look, we kind of view this as a conflict of interest. If you're going to own the Angels, uh, we feel you're going to put your best resources behind that. And we feel like we're, we're not going to get as good treatment as you would be given, you know, the angel stuff. And the Disney assured them that wouldn't be the case. The Dodgers weren't comfortable with that and they amicably parted ways. So what the Dodgers were going to do now 
was bring the merchandise design, not just the design, the merchandise, the whole merchandise business in in-house. It was going to be a run by the Dodgers. And you might think, well, that's how everybody does it. Well, back then, that's not how they, they did it. Just like you have food service in businesses that food service companies that do the food cooking and selling and everything at major league ballparks and NBA arenas and NFL stadiums. That's how merchandising worked as well. They were, it was for the most part, if not completely always done by an outside company. So the Dodgers, my understanding is they were the first professional sports team to bring the merchandising aspect of their business in-house. And the reason they wanted, the Dodgers wanted to speak to me was they wanted me to be the design director of sports merchandising for the Los Angeles Dodgers. And even though I was planning on going out on my own, that was a, the proverbial offer I couldn't refuse. Um, getting to work it for a storied franchise in one of the most beautiful stadiums in, in the history of sports, um, I said, put me in coach. And um, that began my five-year tenure with the Los Angeles Dodgers. As you said in your introduction, I was, according to my boss, Mike Nygren, the director of merchandising, he told me you were the first in-house designer for a professional sports team, and I'm, I'm taking his word for it. Yeah, well, that's a that's a definitely a, <laughs> a good statement to, to pocket and use. Um, so, like, I'm curious, when you go to the Dodgers, you, you mentioned working in merchandising, but you eventually, that, that position scaled out into doing a lot of different stuff, right? I mean, you were designing, like, outfield artwork, I'm assuming sponsorship things, and a, and a lot of the things that we see today in-house in sports design. So were you essentially, like, what was the, I guess, description or, or, or of your position? Like, what was the, how did you scale that into these other things? Was it something that just kind of happened over time, or were you kind of creating your own role? Because, you know, it's a brand new position. Uh, I'm assuming there's, there's a lot of unknowns at the time. So I'm curious if you could, you could touch on some of that. Uh, all the credit goes to Mike Nygren. Mike Nygren was, he wasn't just good at merchandising. He was, as far as mentors in my, in my life, I mentioned Scott Mednick and Mike Nygren was equally as important. Um, he was a big picture guy. He didn't look at things as, okay, we're the merchandise department. We're going to do we're going to hunker down here and we're going to be the best merchandise department, which he did achieve. They, for the five seasons that I worked there, uh, the Los Angeles Dodgers led the led major league baseball in per capita merchandise sales every single season. So, uh, so he did accomplish that, but he didn't look at it as like, okay, this is what we do. And that's what you do. So whenever and wherever something that we were doing in the merchandise department could help the rest of the team, whether it's another department or, or the entire front office scope of things. He, he would do things for other departments. So he let the other departments know, look, we've got this resource here. We've got Dan Simon. This is what he's doing for us. He can help you guys as well. So that, all of that is is credit to Mike Nygren. And the doors that that opened up for me cre from a creative standpoint were 
just amazing. And you, as you mentioned, uh, I the outfield wall at that time, no teams had murals on their outfield wall. Think about an outfield wall. We've measured it because I've designed them. It's basically 400 feet from the left field foul pole to the right field foul pole. So you're designing a 400 foot wide mural. Uh, and I got to do that. I, I'm trying to think when we first did that, but the Dodgers were the first uh, team to do that. I don't take credit for it. Did you, did you guys pitch that? Or how did how did that even come about? That came about. Paul Kalil was the director of advertising for uh, the Dodgers. He came to me and said it, it was his idea. Paul Kalil, um, and he's still out there. He's not working for the Dodgers, but he's out there doing some type of video production stuff. So, Paul, if you're listening, you get you're you're the best, and you. He, it was his vision, and he said, this is what we want to do. We want to go foul pole to foul pole. Um, and he, we, we would discuss what the theme would be each year, and then he just let me go and go wild. And now I say go wild, not crazy designs. You know, it had to be an appropriate design for Dodger Stadium. But there was very, very, it wasn't very hands-on as far as these other departments with whom I worked uh, as – you know, in effect, they're like my clients, and I'm working for them, even though we all work for the same company. But they were—they all let me do my thing. But my thing was to do what was going to be best for the Los Angeles Dodgers. But they were not very hands-on. Um, we would discuss direction together, and then I'd, I'd go try to design the best outfield wall. Um, Paul later, Paul Kalil later said, you know, if ever anybody who's seen the outside of Dodger Stadium that's got this like corrugated aluminum facade. And at that time, it was, it was kind of faded in color. And the the Dodger PR director, a guy named John Olgin, he famously said, or at least famously as far as my memory goes, if Pepto-Bismol was blue, that's what color the outside of Dodger Stadium was. So as beautiful as the stadium as it is, Parts of its, of, its, of its exterior were not that beautiful, so they decided they were going to put large-scale graphics up across the outside of Dodger Stadium. So I was doing these 3,200-square-foot uh, um, environmental designs on the, on the outside of Dodger Stadium. Again, Paul Kalil's vision, I got to design the, the season ticket stock, both the regular season ticket holder uh, ticket designs as well as the premium ticket designs for the suites and the, the dugout club, which is the club be behind home plate there at Dodger Stadium. Um, I, I, I literally got to do everything there except their, the Dodgers advertising. For whatever reason, that was always handled by an outside advertising firm. But I did street banners that were all up around the, the city of Los Angeles. Um, as well as all the merchandise design. I, I, I take that back. Not all the merchandise design because I, I had some help there as well. Um, Kevin Bright was the designer working with me. He did a lot of that as well. Um, I got to design each year's sleeve patch. You know, Ross Yoshida is... Ross Yoshida, when I left the Dodgers, he came right after me. So um, the things that you see him doing, that's what I was doing in the five years before... 
he came on. Yeah, and I'm curious about, did you guys, because uh, I think Ross told me you guys overlapped like a couple months. Did you hire him or how, I mean, how was that? Because obviously you're expanding, it sounds like you're expanding that department now. Well, the design part of our department doubled in size while I was there. But let me issue this caveat. Um, it started with one person and it ended up with two. So that was, that was the double. Yeah. Um, but, but here was kind of the cool thing about it. I mentioned Kevin Bright was the designer working with me. Kevin Bright did not start off as a, as a designer. He was not even a designer. He was kind of, I don't even think he had a title. He was just the person who did everything that didn't fall under a title. And, but he was very artistic. And it had, it, he went to college at the University of Oklahoma. And he took art classes there. And again, credit to Mike Nygren. Mike Nygren saw something in Kevin. And he came, Mike came to me one day and he said, I want Kevin to go to Dan University. He says, I want you to teach him how to be a designer. So I had one of the greatest students who became a darn good designer in his own right without going to design school. He learned at my side um, and, and we did great, great stuff together. We, and we continued actually to, to do work together even after I left. Um, super guy, one of my best friends and, and a super designer. So yeah, the design department didn't become anything more than two people. And as far as uh, me overlapping with Ross, it wasn't two months, it was two weeks. And for those two weeks, I was just getting him up to speed on on everything. And um, I was, yeah, just getting him up to speed. And then he had to hit the ground running himself. Um, and, and as far as I know, I don't I don't know how much of a department it is now. You might know better. I know Ross was on, on your show, but that was a while ago. Um, you know, back then we didn't have social media. There was no social media. So, you know, right now, numerous people have to be creating social media content for every professional, collegiate, even minor league team. That didn't exist. So we, so one designer could do a lot of stuff because you you didn't ha- you didn't have the daily need for content generation back then. Right. So, um, at what point did you decide I'm going to go and launch my own studio? Uh, I, I loved working for the Dieters. The greatest job ever, and I was the the kid in the in the candy store. Uh, it, it, it couldn't have been better. I, I remember one time I was leaving after a game. It was a night game. The merchandise department was actually one that uh, that we were there kind of the latest because they had to like close down all the stands. We had we had twenty merchandise stands around the stadium. We had to, they had to bring in all the money and you know all that kind of stuff. So we were the last to leave. And I remember walking out the tunnel and then locking up. I didn't have the keys, but my the person I was walking out with did, and we were we were locking up Dodger Stadium, and and it it, it it that hit me, and I go, I'm locking up Dodger Stadium, just like when I'd leave my house, I'd lock up my house, like I'm locking up Dodger Stadium, and I'm I was I, I was just giddy, thinking I'm the luckiest boy on the face of the earth. Um, so it was it was a great job, but I had now been working for. 17 
years. I'd been in the graphic design industry 17 years from starting, you know, doing freelance jobs for people like Scott Mednick to five years later with the Dodgers. And it was just time. Uh, there was not any turning point. There was not anything where there was no falling out or anything. I, I left there with a heavy heart because it was such a great job and I loved the people with whom I worked. I, it was just time to go out on my own. I, I had continued doing freelance jobs even when I was working with, with the Dodgers. And I just... Were they all sports related? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and gotcha. Yeah. And, um, you know, you know what? I take that back. I, I remember every now and then there would be, you know, this outlier of a job that, that wasn't sports related, but, um, 99.5% of what I did was, was sports related. Um, and I, so you, you, um, you chose, we, we discussed this actually on the phone recently, but we were talking about names and, and choosing a name for your, for your studio. Right. And, you chose Studio Simon instead of Dan Simon Design, or, or, uh, or even some you know, totally made up diction or well, just like a dictionary word design, right? Um, and and you mentioned you had a reason for doing that, and and it kind of points back to a moment when you were answering the phone back at that design studio, and something that the founder told you as far as the name is concerned and why he wanted the phone answered a certain way. So I'm curious if you could discuss that, the reason why you chose Studio Simon and and kind of that that whole story. Right, right. Um, I When I was starting Studio Simon, I, I did consider other other names. Um, I can I even remember Octane was one of them. I thought that was cool. Uh, even though it wasn't specific to sports, it, it is motor racing and it's got energy. I thought of Accelerate, but it was going to be spelled X-L-R-8, you know, just the three letters and a, and a number. And I think I actually tried to get the URL for that or the domain for that, and somebody else had already... Um, gotten it, and so I moved away from that. But what it came down to was going way, way back to when Scott and I were working out of his living room uh, of his house in on, on Karen Drive. Uh, that first week I was working for him, since it was just the two of us, he didn't want to be the one answering the phone because, you know, he's the owner, so I was answering the phone. And every time I had to answer it, I had her answer Good morning, Scott Mednick and Associates. Uh, and after a week of doing that, I was, not that that's that long of a thing to say, but I was figuring, you know what, I can shorten that to good morning, SM&A. Um, the logo that Scott had created was SM Ampersand A. And so if that's our logo, I figured, well, that's, you know, a nickname for what we are and and. Right. I, I can use that. So I answered the phone, good you know, good morning or good afternoon, SMA, and took the you know, spoke to whoever was calling and when the phone call was over, um, Scott said very nicely, he said, Dan, um, please answer the phone, Scott Mednick and Associates. And I explained to him, Scott's kind of long, what what difference does it make? And he said, I'm starting my business, people don't know who I am. I named the business, Scott Mednick and Associates, because I'm trying to make a name in the industry. When Keep in mind, he was the creative director at another place, but 
that place was called Douglas Boyd Design and Marketing. People knew Douglas Boyd. Nobody knew Scott Mednick. Nobody but the clients. Like, he was not making a name for himself. Um, one of the things, you know, you found it interesting that Scott would eventually go into the the uh, the movie industry. He's he's become an executive producer on, on a number of, of large release films. And... Uh, so Scott knew Scott knew and understood self promotion. So when I was thinking of names for my what was going to be now my business, I, I thought back to that conversation. I thought, you know what, people don't know who I am, so I need to put my. Uh, I think it's going to be beneficial for me to put my name on the business. But the reason I didn't name it. Dan Simon and Associates, or the reason the word studio comes before the name Simon is because for all of my time in as a graphic designer, the work always came first. Uh, I always wanted to do the best work in the industry. And it was really important for me to, um, that, that it's, it will always be important to me. Um, I, I always talk about the work first with potential new clients before talking about budgets. Uh, you know, to even find out if we're if we're able to work together given their budget, I still want to hear their ideas and their vision first, and we we talk about the work first. So, studio is is representing of the the creative part of it. So that's why studio comes before Simon, but Simon's in there because I hope people would get to know my name and I could make a name for myself in the industry. So at which point did you make the move over here to Kentucky? Obviously, I mentioned at the beginning of the show that you're a fellow Kentucky sports designer. And and uh, obviously for someone like me uh, that grew up here and has chosen to stay here, it's it's uh, it's important for me to to know that there are people like yourself out there doing this and 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 having done this successfully over the years. Um, so how I got to Kentucky, living in Los Angeles is a, it's a very high cost of living there, and we needed to be uh, a two income family. Um, I'm trying to think at this time we when we when we left Los Angeles, my my two boys Cooper and Casey were five and three respectively and fittingly named after baseball yes right? Cooper short for Cooperstown and Casey short for Casey Stengel and Casey at the bat and yeah I've got uh, a very understanding wife who who let me uh let my passion for baseball come out in my my son's name so um by the way my wife whose name is AJ was also named after sports. Her dad was a race car driver and uh, they named her Adrian Jean, but she doesn't go by that. They've always called her AJ as an AJ Foyt. So, um, so hmm. yeah, it's kind of uh, a theme, I guess, in our, in our household. Um, oh, and my middle name is Joseph. My mom was a big Joe DiMaggio fan and I am told, she told me that that factored into that being my middle name. So yeah, that's, uh, hey, sports. So, um, Okay, so how we got, yeah, how we got to Kentucky. Uh, so living in Los Angeles, uh, we needed to be a two-income family, and because of that, we had young children. We had to have a nanny. We had a great nanny. Her name was Clelia. She was wonderful, um, but 
she was, our kids were being taken care of and taken care of very well, but they weren't being raised by their mother. Okay. My wife is an attorney. She was working full time as an attorney, working attorney's hours. And, you know, we'd be home at, at night with our kids, although they were very little at the time. So it was only, you know, an, an hour or two um, and, and weekends. But we wanted to live someplace where the cost of living was such that my wife could stay home with the kids while they were still young enough to benefit from that, basically before they started going to school full-time. Um, and so we considered many places. My wife is a voracious researcher, um, and she looked into all the best places to, you know, places rated Almanac and Money, Money Magazine's best places to live, like all, did all the research, and we narrowed it down to several places, uh, Austin, Texas, the Raleigh-Durham area, uh, the Phoenix area, and I can give you the reasons why those ones didn't make the list, um, And but I, I, I won't, it, it's not important why they didn't, why they didn't make the list. Um, but then here's what happened. My wife went to law school at the University of Virginia. She had a couple of best friends there who were born and raised in Louisville. Um, and after law school at the University of Virginia, they went back to live in Louisville. And we had visited them, her friends there, on a, on a couple of occasions. And we always liked Louisville, but had never looked at it from the standpoint of we were going to live there. But one time, my wife and I could not decide where we wanted to move. And it was kind of dragging on a little bit. And we got home from work. AJ and I both at the same time, and my son Cooper was face down on the family room carpet, crying. Uh, he was just inconsolable. And we said to Clelia, um, what's going on here? And she says, I, I don't know. He's, he's just been like this. And I, I turned to AJ and I said, we're moving to Louisville, Kentucky. So, <laughs> you know what? It was kind of like going back to that conversation about how... Um, when I ended up going to the School of Visual Arts where I hadn't thought that much ahead, um, I just knew I wasn't going back to Rutgers and I had to make a snap decision. It's like, okay, I'll go to the School of Visual Arts. We had, we had not even really discussed very seriously moving to Louisville, but we, you know what, the, one of the big differences were was we knew somebody there. All these other places, we didn't know anybody. And so that was good enough for me. We had to do something. I just said, okay, we're going to move to Louisville. So now it was... So, and I mean, at that time though, were you, you, it seems like you were probably working with clients all over the country anyway with a, with a specialty in sports design. So it probably didn't really matter your, your location, right? Yes, I could have lived in Alaska. Um, it, yeah, I had clients from coast to coast, north to south, all over the United States. And uh, yeah, because of you know technology, we all know, especially right now, how we could work remotely and be as productive as if we were on site somewhere. So, um, so, so you mentioned to me once that um, you don't consider yourself a very good business person. Um, and and I think that that's that's something that a lot of of designers tend to to adopt. But 
you have run a studio for for quite some time, right? I mean, I'm not sure sure exactly the amount of years, but obviously over a decade. Um, so your your initial strategy was good work is going to bring on more good work. But I'm curious, throughout that whole time, was that always the case? Was somebody, everything was word of mouth or did you ever have to actually pick up the phone and cold call people and do some outreach? Um, well, by the way, I've been out operating Studio Simon full-time for 18 years. So yeah, it's, it's almost two decades. And, and frankly, I've started it, I named it Studio Simon when I was with the Dodgers. So really, it's been longer than that, but full-time after leaving the Dodgers for 18 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, yeah, I, at the, at, in the early days of me doing sports design, I would cold call. Like here, here's, I can think of a specific example. There is, there was going to be a new minor league baseball team in Lancaster, California, not, not Pennsylvania, Lancaster, California. And, Oh, they were moving. They were moving, I think, from Riverside, relocating from Riverside to Lancaster and having a new stadium built for them there. And I I would read uh, Baseball America, which is a, a baseball publication that mainly focuses on the minor leagues. And so I had a subscription to that, and I would keep abreast of, of sports news. And so having heard that there was going to be this relocation, I got in touch with the owners of that team. This was when I was working at Willardson and Associates um, and called them and just said, hey, I'm a sports designer. By this time, I had, I had real sports design jobs now in my portfolio. And keep in mind, the sports design still was not an industry. And so there were there was not a lot of competition. Uh, I I I got in almost on the ground floor, and so for a sports designer to be calling somebody, it's not like they were their phone was ringing off the hook with people calling them saying, "Hey, we wanted we want to do your um, d- design your identity." Um, so it, I yeah I I try to follow what was going on. I would make. I would do some cold calling. Um, I later would go to the baseball winter meetings where there's a trade show, um, and I would exhibit at the trade show, have my own booth. And that was great for for a few years because that was one-stop shopping, at least for minor league baseball it was. Um, I'd be sitting there, and anybody who had design needs would walk by and see Studio Simon there, and I I got a a, a good amount of work from that. Um, But for the most part, it has been word of mouth. And and currently, that, like over the last few years, it's almost all been word of mouth. And and also now with social media, I'm not on all the platforms. I'm, I'm only on Dribbble and Instagram. I don't even know Adam, does do you count dribble as does that is that quote unquote social media? Yeah, I guess I guess so. I mean, we'll we'll count it. I don't know that it's. I, I still think of the big three like uh, Facebook, Twitter, and and Instagram as the as the primary platforms. Okay, so of those primary platforms, I'm only on Instagram. Although I, I do know I'm, I'm actually working on a job right now that I know I got through dribble. Um, so not through through Instagram. So uh, Dribble hasn't led to a lot of work, but I do know recently it has. And 
going back to me saying I'm, I'm not a good businessman, I'm not. My business plan, and I listeners don't try this at home, was a one-sentence business plan, which was to bring award-winning design, award-winning quality design uh, to the, the world of sports and to let the quality of that work lead, beget more work. And not a great business plan. Fortunately, since I, I, I got in, like I said, almost on the ground floor, uh, when I didn't have a lot of competition, I was able to build up a, a, a business and a, build a name um, in the industry. And I, I find that I still get work from just from that. Do you um so at some point in time though you got called to pitch on Super Bowl logos right which is kind of one of those dream projects well historically it's been one of those dream projects for sports designers obviously they've systematized the whole the whole thing which I know a lot of people myself included are not a huge fan of I just feel like that if you go back and look at those old logos it sort of stamps a visual look and feel on on like a time period you know and and to me that's what's great about event branding but uh any anyway i dig, i digress um can you discuss the how that whole thing came about right i mean and even to the point where when you got the call to work on a super bowl logo i mean what's what's going through your head at the time did you did they give you the process on on how it was all going to work or was it something that you kind of every different designer or agency had to kind of dictate when I was at Willardson and Associates, uh, just to remind you guys, I, after nine years at the at the Medna Group, I went to work for Willardson and Associates, where, where I was for two years. One of his clients was um, uh, NFL Properties, and Brad Jansen was the executive art director at the Los Angeles office of NFL properties. They also had a New York office, strangely enough. They had creative offices in New York and LA at the time. And we did some projects for for Brad Jansen when I was at Willardson. Now, when I say we, I was the only designer there, so I did those projects. And when I left Willardson, I, um, I let Brad know that I was no longer at Willardson and would love to keep working with him. Um, it, nothing happened immediately, but, so let me see, that would have been, because I left Willardson in 96. So, yeah, nothing happened immediately because it wasn't until 2001 that Brad came calling. And what that was, was, as you mentioned, Adam, the Super Bowl logos then had this sense of, of place. And that meant that if the game was in... Um, New Orleans, the logo would have a New Orleans look and feel. And the 2001 season Super Bowl, which was played in, you know, after New Year's in 2002, so it's the 2002 game representing the 2001 season, um, they had a logo in place that I did not do. The game was in New Orleans. It kind of had this New Orleans look and feel. But then 9-11 happened. And the game went from being a game played in, you know, the big game in the Big Easy to being a game played in the United States. And the, the, um, the NFL 
decided they needed to change the logo. And what's, what's interesting is the logo was not just designed, it was in use. It was on things. And Yeah, we're talking, this is probably a massive, expensive <laughs> like thing to redo, right? Right, and it also... It also had to be done immediately. Normally, the Super Bowl logo would be done, you know, at least a year in advance. Probably started more than a year in advance, but done at least a year in advance because it gets start putting on stuff, uh, you know, very early on product and advertising and all manner of collateral. And so Brad called and he said. I just love the way Brad would always, he would always ask me about doing projects saying, are you interested? And it's like anything he came to me with, of course I'm interested, but he always would say, are you interested? So he, he, he wanted to know if I was interested in working on a Super Bowl logo and it's hell yeah, I'm interested. So, uh, he says, but, uh, we only have, you have one week to do, five directions. And he, and he told me, we've got six different designers working on it. Each designer is doing five directions. So there's going to be 30 logos up for consideration. And you have, wow. to, you have to do your five in a week. Now, I was working for the Dodgers at the time. So this meant I had a week from like 7 p.m. on till, you know, before, how, however late I could stay up. I had a week worth, worth of nights to work on it. So I would stay up till I'd get home from my job with the Dodgers. Um, this is late September. Um, and uh, work till two or three or four in the morning and then get up for work the next morning. I also had, I mentioned my, the designer who I worked with at the Dodgers, Kevin Bright, um, I asked Kevin if he wanted to do one, so I ended up doing four, and Kevin did did a really wonderful one as well. So that that was our five, um, and then what it, the NFL does is they bring it to the powers that be, who go over them and whittle them down to you know a, a short list of maybe three or four that are being considered for the official logo, and ultimately one of the ones that I did um, got chosen for. Super Bowl 36 um, with the, oh, I should mention, as far as how it worked, you know, you're always given, if you're not given a creative brief, you're, you're given a long explanation of what they're asking for. And I also, I do, I ask a lot of questions and I do even more listening. Um, in this case, the creative brief was one word, patriotic. That was it. Um, so, and that's, you know, th- that gives you a lot of different opportunities, but it's pretty pretty straightforward. You get it. Um, and, and so that was one word was all they needed. So that's the way that one worked. And then the next year, um, Brad called again. Now this time, like, uh, you know, a year in advance of, of Super Bowl 37. And um, I was fortunate. And that one was in San Diego. And that one, they went back to a city-specific logo. Um, having grown, not grown up, but having lived in Southern California for close to 18 years, I, it's not like I needed to do research on that. But I did research anyway. Um, you know, I, I, I lived around the whole surf culture and L.A. lifestyle and Southern California lifestyle and gone to all beaches from Malibu down to... Coronado Beach in, in San Diego. So 
So I got it. I knew what San Diego was all about, but um, I actually, I, I still do to this day intensive research for any project that, that I do. And one of the things I discovered was that San Diego has not one, but two lighthouses. And one of the lighthouses uh, for anyone who has lived in Southern California, there's this thing called the June gloom. And what that is, is this low lying fog that seems to um, hang around in, in in the morning and it burns off by around noon and then you have a beautiful beach day. But this lighthouse that was built in something like 1869 in San Diego was um, built atop a 420 foot cliff, which seemed like a good place for a lighthouse. That's how they kind of, you know, kind of are on, on the, you know, in the Northeast and in other places. But uh, it didn't work in San Diego because of that low lying fog. So after, I don't know, like 30 years, they decommissioned that lighthouse and built um, a new one at the same place at Point Loma, um, but built it at, at sea level. So it would be below this, this fog. And uh, I did one direction. I actually thought it was a, a long shot because uh, people don't normally associate lighthouses with San Diego, but I kind of love the story of the old Point Loma lighthouse and why it still exists as a museum. You can visit it. Um, I loved the story. I thought it was unique, and I did a logo with that, and that ended up getting picked as the chosen logo for Super Bowl thirty-seven. Um, I then got to work on the next two Super Bowls as well, but um, my contemporary, Todd Radom, his logos were chosen for, for those two Super Bowls. So I got to work on four, and then... The NFL closed their office in Los Angeles, and they said to Brad Jansen, you know, you can move to New York and keep your job. But he had a family with kids in high school, and he just said, I'm not moving my family. So he was no longer at the NFL, and I didn't have my client at the NFL anymore. So... Um, so they... they <clears throat> but they still, they still have an office in L.A., um, because I just, uh, so I'm I'm curious if it was just like maybe the marketing team or something that was closed. Because because um, the previous guest, which which this episode hasn't been released yet, it will when this comes out, uh, works at the LA office. But I think the marketing team works it works in New York. Well, I I, I actually don't have the specifics of that. I just know that Brad had the the opportunity to move to New York and didn't. That, that was the only way his job was going to continue was if he moved to New York. Gotcha. So he wasn't fired. He just did not, um, he, he didn't want to make that move to the other coast. And, uh, and I unfortunately lost not just a great client because it was the NFL. Brad, Brad was an incredibly talented designer and art director in his own right. Um, he himself did at least a couple of the Super Bowl logos that preceded the ones I worked on. Um, and so super guy, super, just great person to work with. He's one of those people who, who just gets it and was a dream to work for. What, so, what, is his, what is his name again? Brad Jansen, J-A-N-S-E-N. I was recently in touch with him uh, just like a week or two ago, just via email. So he's still out there. But not in sport, not in in the sports industry. Yeah. So earlier you're you're talking about asking questions. You actually had an interview with the Sports Business Journal 
a few years ago where you, where you discussed the collaborative design process and asking questions. And obviously me, I'm a question asker for obvious reasons uh, <laughs> with this being a podcast. Um, but you discussed how all of the artwork that you produce is often described by the client, oftentimes unbeknownst to them, but it's through you asking questions, right? So can you elaborate on this and how you draw that out through questions? Well, what you're referring to there, Adam, as far as them giving me the answer with, with in not so many words, okay? Uh, I have conversations with them much like the conversation you and I are having right now. They're, they're the kind of interviews, but they're also chats where I don't have a list of predetermined questions and, I, I, and where I check off those boxes, but there are things that clients will say uh, just in these, in these otherwise casual conversations that tell me things. Um, they're almost... Like, you know, what, what's the term people are using today? Dog whistles. You know, they're not coming right out and saying it, but, but to me, they are. Um, you know, I, here's one example I'll give. One of the identities uh, that people get a kick out of that I did I, uh, is for a collegiate summer league team in Savannah, Georgia, called the Savannah Bananas. And their owner, uh, Jesse Cole, who is a, a tremendous... He's a showman. He's the P.T. Barnum of, of baseball. Um, and we were having this conversation, and I was trying to ask questions that would lead to kind of a description of what, um, how they envisioned this banana would look. We're gonna, we were going to have to take a banana and turn it into a logo. And he, he, he said a lot of things, but then at one point he says, you know, Dan, it just has to be a kick-ass banana. And that word right there, in the same way that the, uh, the, word, the single word patriotic was the entire creative brief for uh, the Super Bowl 36 logo, that to me was the whole creative brief. Um, now, what kick-ass means, if you have 10 different designers doing their interpretation of a, of a kick-ass banana, you're going to get 10 different bananas. Uh, so it is incumbent on me to bring my knowledge and experience into creating a kick-ass banana that, um, that is going to resonate with the fans. Um, and I, I can't explain how that happens. That's just years of, of doing this and, and learning what, what works and what doesn't. Um, but it's just finding those little things that clients say. And I guess maybe because I'm a, I'm, a I'm a visual person, words turned into images in my head. So I want to discuss a little business here. I mean, we, you, obviously, I've run a studio for, for quite some time, and, and you run a studio for quite some time. And you've been in sports design for, for many years and, and have probably observed things that have happened over that time where design at one point in time was very heavily valued to now it seems like things have really become commoditized, right? I mean, we see, you know, for example, and and I, and this is not to discredit some of these kids, right? All power to them for doing, trying to, trying to hustle, but you'll start to see like these 16, you know, to 18 year olds making things on 
Instagram or whatever and calling themselves a graphic designer and they have no knowledge of the actual history of graphic design. They basically just own a copy of a Photoshop um, and start creating. Um, so I'm curious, uh, in your perspective, how can guys like you and me that are that are obviously strategic in our thinking and and have kind of that brand thinking and understand the business side of of design? How do we stay relevant in this modern era where basically content is king and you got to continue pushing stuff out there and and that type of thing? Well, let me address something you you were saying about um, all of these young men and women who are out there creating all this social media content and not really knowing the the history of design and and that I was listening to actually just coincidentally one of your uh, older not old old podcast but one from I don't know, a year or two, three years ago with, um, and pardon me for forgetting his first name, but Lindstrom, um, do you know who I'm talking about? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, Brian. Um, okay, Brian Lindstrom, who does... Um, yeah, worked for the bike the bike company. Right, Trek, worked bicycle. for Trek, and then also does this um, Bases Loaded project, and 50, 50 Built, I believe, is another one of his things. And, and he was, he said something that kind of, my ears kind of perked up when he said this. He he was saying, you know, for oh, he was talking about getting an M, an MBA, and he said, you know, in design, you don't you don't need an MBA. Frankly, you don't even need a college BFA, you know, a regular undergrad deg- degree to be a designer, and that's true. Um, but one of the shames of it is that even though a lot of great work is being done by designers who don't necessarily have a design education. There's also a lot of stuff that's being done by designers who you can see in the work they don't have a design education. And it's really a shame because there's like some core principles of design and typography, things things like kerning, like things that I learned from professionals who, who who do this for a living and who had years of experience and who took the time to teach you things, just like anything, whether it's teaching you history or teaching you mathematics, uh, that, that design education is something that's really lost nowadays. Um, and, and that's kind of a shame. As far as what uh, we can do, Adam, this my answer is going to be I'm going to have to preface it by saying, as you pointed out that I said to you before, I'm not the greatest business person. And I rely on or or at least hope for there to be enough people out there who understand the difference between what I do and what I deliver compared to what my competitors do. Um, I, I strive to be not just to do the best work in the industry, but to be that really good listener who understands my client's goals and, and, and understands their vision and delivers to them the tools they need to achieve all of those things in a way that's, that's the best stuff in the industry. So solving their problems, solving their challenges and having it be the best stuff in the industry, I, I just, I rely on that 
I rely on there being people out there who see that and understand that and come to Studio Simon for that. Is that a great business model? No, it's not. But um, <laughs> that's, um, that's what I have going. And you know what, Adam? I have been doing a lot of thinking about how to be better at the business side of things. I don't have the answer for it yet. Um, but, uh, well, so that's, I, I, I don't have a great answer other than. Yeah, well, no, it's, it's, it's definitely, I think no one, no one has solved this, right? I mean, it's, it's obviously why I'm asking the question. I mean, I've done, you know, over a hundred podcasts and this is kind of a recurring, recurring theme, right? Like how do you compete in such a saturated market nowadays? Um, especially when, you know, there's, I mean, I know for a fact that the NBA social media team will, will pay 150 bucks for like social media graphics. And it's just, it's insane to see and hear about that price. When you're 17 years old, 150 bucks is a new pair of Jordans, right? It's amazing. And you get to say you work with the NBA, but when you have three kids and you're running a business, 150 bucks isn't even worth answering the, the, taking the time to even answer the, the email. You know, so it's, 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 uh, it's definitely an interesting, interesting time, uh, in this, in this world of sport. And to be honest, I think there is some sacrifice that has to be made when you do want to work in sport because everyone wants to work in it. And I always kind of crack the joke that people work are willing to work for t-shirts and tickets. And it's, it's, it's an unfortunate reality, uh, unless we as an industry collectively kind of stand up and be like, no, we're not going to not going to take that project for that. Right. But the problem is there's always going to be somebody that will. And, and so in my opinion, I think you have to compete on things that are outside of design. Like you were saying, whether that's your, your client service and your relationship with the client and your ability to speak to the client. Cause I, I mean, I've had some clients come to me that have said they've tried to work with some of these Instagram stars or whatever. Um, and they're just like, they can't even have a conversation. Right, they they literally cannot sit down and have a a physical conversation of two people speaking, and and some people just if if it's something superficial you're looking for and you're trying to um, get some Photoshop piece done or some social media piece right that's going to be here today and gone in an hour. I mean, sure, maybe that's something that you can do. But when it comes to like especially the branding stuff and the long term things, there has to be some some higher level of thinking than what is like this sort of superficial thing look like but i do want to i do want to move on into discussing burnout cuz i think this is this is something you and i have discussed before i i tend to go through this you know right now sport sports typically never stops right it's constantly going and when you work in the sports industry you're constantly you know covid-19 aside and in, in normal circumstances sports never stops you're constantly reading about the sports business uh, trying to stay up to date, paying attention to news and whatnot. It's like a 24-7 cycle. And for me personally, I'm doing that. Plus, I'm trying to coach or manage my kids' sporting endeavors. Um, and and I find it hard to watch sports from an entertainment perspective oftentimes. Uh, and obviously, this side project, Makers of Sport, right? I mean, my whole, right now, twenty my entire life revolves around sport. And, and, and burnout is something that I deal with a lot. So I'm curious, how do you handle burnout having worked in the sports business for so long from a design perspective? Well, burnout is, it's very real. No question about it. Um, especially when, even though I've done work across the entire sports landscape, football, basketball, hockey, soccer, track and field, I've, I've, it's not just baseball, but I've done a lot of baseball, which is 
which is a good thing because I love the sport, but I've also done a lot of minor league baseball. And there, there is sort of a, um, there is sort of a, a, it could get repetitive. I shouldn't say it could, it does get repetitive. But here, two things. One I find is that even though I might sort of be doing the same kinds of projects, I get tremendous satisfaction from a job well done and solving my clients' challenges. Um, it's, it's, it, that has never stopped being rewarding. So even though I might find I'm doing like the same thing again, when, when I do it, it's, it's still very rewarding. So I guess I've been lucky that way that I'm still able to find happiness in what I've been doing for a very, very long time. The other thing is uh, I've, I've been looking outside the world of sports just to stretch my creative legs a little bit. Um, I have a friend who uh, recently left his, his job and, and was starting up a craft uh, not craft, a distilled spirit consultancy. He used to work for Brown Foreman, which owns like Jack Daniels and I think Absolute Vodka and, and a lot of other of those, those distilled spirit brands. Uh, and he, he had been in the business for something like 22 years. Now he's going to be working as a consultant. And I helped him brand his, uh, his business and not a sports design, not a sports solution. And, that was that was incredibly rewarding for me. It was like a breath of fresh air. So I would recommend, uh, yeah, looking outside of not not our comfort zone per se, but you know our chosen industry, um, and it's a good way to stay fresh. Uh, well, Dan, you know you've you've uh, obviously had a had quite the career in sports design. Many many stories that that you and I have actually literally spent hours and hours on the phone <laughs> discussing. Um, and, and, and I, I wish that we could bring all those to the people, but we were pushing two hours here and, and obviously podcasts. Um, uh, we're not Joe Rogan, <laughs> so to speak. So, um, let's, uh, let's give listeners an opportunity to contact you. Um, and, and if they want to hear some of these stories, they can, they can certainly do that. And perhaps maybe we circle back again at some other time through like an Instagram live or something and, and, and deep dive on some of these, some of these projects, uh, specifically the, the Canapolis Cannonballers, uh, as I know that that was a, a project you were very passionate about. Um, so in wrapping up, uh, why don't you give listeners uh, an, an opportunity to to reach out to you? Where can they find you on digitally, or you know where you interact on social media and and that type of thing? Okay, yeah, as mentioned earlier, social media is just Instagram, and that's studio underscore Simon. Um, I'm on Dribble as well, and I apologize for not knowing exactly what that is. But if you type in Studio Simon in the search, you'll It'll bring you right to me. Um, and then there's my website, which is studiosimon.net. Um, .com will also bring you there, but officially it's .net. Um, and that's how you can come and take a look at what uh, I've been, I'm doing now and some stuff from long ago as well. Awesome. Well, and, and to the listeners, I encourage uh, y'all to reach out to Dan. And uh, he's full of stories. And Dan, 
uh, it's been a pleasure getting to know you over the years. Um, I appreciate you taking the time to come aboard. Um, thank you for having me. And when this whole COVID thing is over, I even though we won't do the podcast necessarily in person, I do want to come over and see your, your rural spread there outside of Lexington. Yeah, absolutely. I would, I would love it. Well, thanks a lot, man. You're welcome. My next guest is going to be Tori Boykins. Tori is a graphic designer at the Kansas City Royals. Prior to the Royals, she worked with former guest Jordan Giesler at the Kansas City Chiefs and has been a longtime member of the Makers of Sport community. You can follow Tori's work on both Instagram and Twitter at Tori Boykins. That is at T-O-R-I-B-O-Y-K-I-N-S. Big thanks again to Dan Simon for taking time to come aboard the podcast. Uh, he's a pioneer in this industry. He's also a fellow Kentuckian. So please follow along with Dan's work on his Instagram at studio underscore Simon. And then check out his newly redesigned website at studiosimon.net. Past Makers of Sport episodes can be found in Apple Podcasts at makersofsport.com slash iTunes, as well as on SoundCloud, Spotify, or on the website makersofsport.com. If you enjoy the sponsor-free content coming from Makers of Sport and are interested in keeping it ad-free, you can support the show by joining the member community at makersofsport.com slash community. In exchange for your fiscal support, you'll have access to additional and ever-changing content such as private Q&As with future former and special guests, community video hangouts, as well as interact, share private, trustworthy feedback, and build relationships with like-minded professionals in the live chat. You'll also receive a 20% discount on all Makers of Sport products. Speaking of Makers of Sport products, I launched an apparel store. Check out makersofsport.com slash store. There'll be new designs launching, so please stay tuned. Every purchase goes to support the MOS brand as I pour those dollars back into this company to allow me to continue writing, researching, and bringing educational sports design and branding content to you for free. Lastly, please take one to two minutes, head over to makersofsport.com slash iTunes, click the five star, and write about your positive experience with the show. This helps others like yourself discover the podcast and the value it brings educationally to people wanting to work on the creative side of the sports business. If you cannot support the show fiscally, these comments are a great way to show your support and love. I read them all and it really helps me continue this endeavor. I'll also accept likes or ratings on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast application you enjoy listening in. I am at T. Adam Martin on social. The show is at Makers of Sport. Until next time, have a good week. <laughs>